Amen. We love you, Dot. So, uh, as you, if you were here last week, um, you saw that we we're starting a short series of about four sermons uh, to kind of for a Reformation November. That's our theme. So, we're looking at the main doctrines of the Reformation that kind of reinvigorated the church as. Uh, many people, including Martin Luther, but not just Martin Luther, um, started to see that uh, for centuries what had been taught in the Catholic Church was less than Christian doctrine. And they really wanted to center specifically on the topic of justification and salvation and kind of how does that work. Um, and so last week we looked at one of the chief doctrines of the Reformation, sola gratia by grace alone. But if you were here last week, you heard a great sermon by Drew Goodman. And one, one of the things that made it a great sermon was that he couldn't stop talking about faith when he was talking about grace, because those two things go together. And I knew that I was going to be preaching a sermon on sola fide, faith alone. And so I was very excited when he started talking about faith last week, because we really can't preach a sermon about faith unless we talk about grace. And we can't really preach a sermon about grace unless we talk about faith. Um, so if you haven't listened to that sermon, please do, because he said some things that I feel like I don't need to say now that he already said them last week. Um, but one of my thoughts as I was trying to prepare this sermon was about um, whether or not we, we, bless you, we fully appreciate what the doctrine of faith alone, sola fide, really is and really means. Uh, often when I hear people talking about sola fide, they talk about it in a very systematic, kind of sterile way. This is the doctrine that proves whether or not you're a true Protestant or whether or not you're a Catholic or an apostate or something like that. Do you believe you're saved by faith or do you believe you're saved by works? And this doctrine is what kind of separates the sheep from the goats. Okay, so you just got to get it right. You got to get that answer right on the, the catechism quiz. You know. And then we can kind of do away with it and then move on. But I've wondered if we're kind of giving sola fide short shrift, if it's just a litmus test, if it's just that answer you have to get right in order to be on the right side of theology rather than the wrong side of theology. So that got me thinking about what if we asked kind of some bigger questions about faith alone? Um, what if we asked questions such as, uh, why does salvation need to be by faith alone? We know it is. Scripture tells us this. We even heard it in our assurance of pardon today. You're saved by grace through faith. Right? And even this faith is not your own. It's a gift from God. So no one can boast. Okay, but, but why? Why does it need to be by faith alone? And I also thought we should ask the question that does faith alone even matter to us once we've believed? Once, once we've become a Christian, been converted, been justified, do we put the doctrine of faith alone aside now as just something that applied to us when we were wanting to become a Christian? Or 
Does faith alone, is that a doctrine for all of life? Is that something that should define everything we do and everything we are until we're called home to glory? So those are kind of the two things I want to look at. Why faith alone? And what? Where? When? For how long? How does faith alone kind of apply to us throughout our entire lives? And I think for, in order for us to do that, we have to spend some time looking at the story of Scripture and how this doctrine of faith fits into the whole arc, the whole narrative arc of Scripture from beginning to end. Of course, we're going to do that in 25 minutes because, you know, we can really, we can do that. Um, so turn with me to the beginning, which is always a good place to start. Genesis, we're going to start in Genesis 2. I'm convinced that if you get the beginning of Scripture wrong, you're probably going to end up getting a lot of things wrong. Okay? It's kind of like if you talk to an architect who's going to build a bridge. You know how they build bridges? They start with building the foundation on both sides of the river, and then the bridge is going to meet in the middle. But if you get it off just slightly at that foundation, once you start building the bridge, it's going to go like this. And you can actually find really funny photos online of architects who did it wrong and oop we didn't quite meet in the middle <laughs> and I think Genesis the reason why there are so many arguments about Genesis is because we realize that you get this wrong and you're going to get a lot of things wrong down the line the same thing about Revelation it's the other side you got to get that right too and we see in Genesis already the necessity of faith so let's start there Genesis 2 God has created the heavens and the earth, and uh, we'll start in verse 5, after he rests. It says this, When no bush of the field was yet in the land, and no small plant of the field had yet sprung up, for the Lord God had not create, caused it to rain on the land, and there was no man to work the ground, and a mist was going up from the land and was watering the whole face of the ground, then the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground, and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living creature. And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east, and there he put the man whom he had formed. And out of the ground the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden, and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. A river flowed out of Eden to water the garden, and there it divided and became four rivers. The name of the first was the Pishon. It is the one that flowed around the whole land of Havilah, where there is gold. And the gold of that land is good. Bedellium and onyx stone are there. And the name of the second river is the Gihon. It is the one that flowed around the whole land of Cush. And the name of the third river is the Tigris, which flows east of Assyria. And the fourth river is the Euphrates. The Lord God took the man, put him in the garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it you shall surely die. Then the Lord God said, It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. Now out of the ground the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all the livestock and to all the birds of the heavens and to every beast of the field, but for Adam there was, no, there was not found a helper fit for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall on the man, and while he slept, he took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. 
And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. And then the man said, this at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. Okay, so Genesis starts by giving us a picture of what life was like before sin entered the picture. Um, And what we see is something very interesting. We see that God has created a context for man to be in relationship with him. And it tells us kind of what that relationship is going to look like. First, we're told that God takes dirt, and from dirt he fashions a dirt man. Um, And that's actually what it means in the Hebrew. So uh, dirt is the, the word Adamah, and man is Adam. The man of dirt, really a dirt thing. That's really what it is. He, take, he makes a dirt thing, and then he gives the dirt thing life. Wow. And then he gives that dirt thing his image. And then he puts the dirt thing that now has life and now has his image, and he puts it in this lush garden. We're told there are rivers, there are trees with every kind of fruit that you can eat. Sounds like paradise, right? Now, let's think about this for a second. Did that dirt deserve to become a man? Did that dirt thing deserve to be given life and given God's image and then be placed in this lush and beautiful garden of gifts? No. From the very beginning, we see that the the economy of God, the order that God establishes, is one all of grace. It's all a gift. From the very beginning, God's giving good gifts. And God says, this is all you need to do, is you need to see it, you need to enjoy it. You need to be grateful for it. But just in case you get the idea that this isn't a garden of grace, just in case you might get the idea that this is something that you deserve because you're so great, I'm going to put a tree there. A lot of people have asked the question, why did God put the tree of the knowledge of good and evil in the garden to begin with? This could have solved a lot of problems if he just didn't have it there, right? But I think the tree there, both the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, were put there to remind Adam something very important. That he is not God. That there's a distinction between him and God. When God says, here's a tree of life, eat of it and you'll live. God's reminding Adam that everything he is, is dependent upon God. God is the source of life. God is the source of everything he is. God made him. And then when God puts a tree and he says, you can eat everything except that, God is reminding Adam that he is distinct from God. He is not God. 
He needs to humble himself before God. He needs to obey, right? This obedience is essential to create a distinction. And the distinction is essential because you cannot enjoy God's gifts unless you realize that they're gifts you don't deserve. Now, so far, things are great, except Adam's alone. I mean, he has a lot of animals, and he might even have a dog, which is man's best friend, but a dog can't be man's best wife. So God says, you know what? I'm going to give you an even better gift, a better gift than all the trees of the garden, a better gift than satisfying work for you to do, a better gift than all of this lushness. I'm going to give you a woman. And we see that Adam, he makes the proper response. First, he sees her, and he goes, whoa. Whoa. That's the Hebrew, whoa. (laughs) And after he sees her, he can't stop being grateful, rejoicing, thanking God for, he speaks poetry. This is the first words of mankind on the earth is poetry. He's so excited. If only we could get so excited to just speak out poetry. And he obviously is, he's excited to the point of saying, at last, this is the thing that I've been wanting, that I didn't even necessarily know I wanted, but at last God's given it to me, and now I'm complete. My bone of my bones, flesh of my flesh. He's enjoying the grace of God. He's enjoying the gifts of God. He's seeing them. He's being grateful for them. And he's content living in this garden of grace. It's pretty great. Why why don't we only have two chapters in the Bible? This would be be great. But as we know, uh, after chapter 2 comes chapter 3. And the serpent wants to kind of mess up the economy of the garden. He wants to come in and totally flip upside down the garden of grace. So before the serpent comes in, Adam and Eve are there to enjoy God's blessings, to receive his grace, receive his gifts, enjoy them, be grateful for them, and obey. And pretty much the only thing that they need to obey is this one command not to eat of the tree of knowledge of good and evil. And they don't need the knowledge of good and evil because they have the knowledge of God. It's essentially God saying, look, I will take care of you. You don't need to discern between good and evil in a a grand sense. I know what's good for you and I will give it. And I know it's bad for you, and I will tell you what to refrain from. You need to know me and trust me, and I will take care of you. And as long as they're following that economy, they're good. But Satan comes in, and look what he does. Verse 1 of chapter 3. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? Okay, now notice Satan's schemes here. 
Because, spoiler alert, Satan's strategy here is the same strategy he uses on us. He doesn't actually change his playbook because his playbook keeps working. So as we're starting to see what Satan does to poison the garden of grace, we can start to see what he does even in our own lives. So the first thing he does is he actually completely twists God's command. Notice what he says. He says, did God actually say you shall not eat of any of these wonderful trees? And of course, that's not what God even said. He said you can only, you can eat of any of them. It's just one that you're not allowed to eat from. But what Satan is doing is he's planting in Eve's mind the possibility that God is not a God of grace. God's not a God who gives all of these good gifts. He's a God who withholds good gifts from us. Did God say you can't eat of any of this? He's planting that little doubt in her mind that maybe God is withholding instead of giving. And the woman said to the serpent, well, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God did say that you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden. Neither shall you touch it, lest you die. Okay, so first Satan puts a little seed of doubt in Eve's mind, and he questions God's word, God's commands. And then he gets her to be the one to say God is keeping something from us. He is keeping us from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And as she's saying that, she starts stumbling over her words and ends up adding a bunch of stuff, adding to the Lord's commands. We're not even allowed to touch it. Now, we don't know why she did this. Uh, one, some people think that it's possible that God told Adam the command not to eat of the tree of knowledge of good and evil um, before Eve was created. That's what it seems to say in uh, chapter 2. So it was Adam's job to tell Eve. And Adam may have been a little lazy about it. Eve may have asked, well, that's an interesting tree right in the middle of the garden. And Adam says, yeah, just don't even go near it. Don't touch it. That's possible. Or maybe Eve had come up with this idea. But either way, Satan's already started to sow the seeds of doubting God's commands, and now Eve is adding to God's commands and getting his commands wrong. And then the serpent keeps going. But the serpent said to the woman, you shall not surely die. So he gets her to question God's commands, and now he gets her to question God's promises. Because really it's a twofold promise. If you eat of it, you shall die. If you don't eat of it, what? You shall live. And Satan says, I don't think he's that trustworthy. You're not going to die. In fact, maybe it'll be better for you if you eat. Verse 5, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Now he goes in for the kill. You know what God's really withholding from you? 
He's withholding from you your potential. Your potential to be like Him. He wants you to be small so He can be great. He wants you to be ignorant so that He can tell you what to do. But you know what's even better? Is if you have the knowledge of good and evil and get to determine for yourself what is good and what is not. What you should do and what you shouldn't do. He's questioning God's very goodness. He's saying God's not good. God is keeping you from being as great as you can be. Okay, so he, he puts seeds of doubt in Eve's mind. We question God's word. We question God's promises. We question God's goodness. Now at this moment, what Eve needs is faith. That's what she needs. She needs to receive in faith God's good gifts. She needs to receive in faith God's good promises. She needs to receive in faith God's good word. And she needs to say, Serpent, you're not telling the truth. That's not the God I know. I might not have the knowledge of good and evil, but I have the knowledge of God. That is not my God. My God is a good God. My God is someone who does not withhold good things from me. Everything he gives me is a good gift. And if he tells me to stay away from something, that's because it's not good. That's what Eve needed. She needed faith. But Satan is sowing the seeds of unbelief. And so look what the seeds of unbelief sprout into. Verse 6. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise. She took of its fruit and ate, and she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. Okay. So the seeds of unbelief sprout into the three primary sins. The first, she saw that the tree was good for food. It's the lust of the flesh right there. She saw that it was a delight to the eyes. It's the lust of the eyes. And that it was to be desired to make one wise, the pride of life. The lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life, the three categories of sin all came from the seeds of unbelief sown by the serpent in Eve's mind and heart. What she needed was the shield of faith to extinguish the fiery darts of the devil. She's living in a garden of grace, and all she needs to do is behold it, receive it, enjoy it, And obey. But Satan sows the seeds of doubt. And it springs up into a tree of disobedience. And of course, then she gives it to her husband who is with her, presumably with her the whole time, who should have been stepping up and saying, be gone, Satan, and reminding Eve of God's good word. But he did. And they ate. Now, if we speed up a little bit, I want us to look at verse 15. 
to see what God does with this. We all know the story. God comes after Adam. He says, where are you? I was hiding. I was afraid. And God then gets all of them together and he says, all right, we're going to go down the line. Serpent, you're first. And as God is cursing the serpent, he gives a little promise in verse 15. I will put enmity between you, the serpent, and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Okay, this is what we call the, the first gospel. There's good news at the end of the curse that God will make things right through the offspring of this woman. Another promise, a promise that now Adam and Eve need to hold on to in faith. Now, let's skip down. So he curses the woman, he curses the man, and then in verse 20 it says this, The man called his wife's name Eve because she was the mother of all living. And the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skins and clothed them. Okay, so after the curse and after God's first gospel proclamation that he's going to set things right eventually through the woman, Adam names his wife Eve. Um, Because she's the mother of all living, has she had any kids yet? No. No. No, we have to get to chapter 4 before she has kids. So why now does Adam already call her the mother of all living? It's because he believes Genesis 3.15. This is Adam's first act of faith. The thing is, she can only be the mother of all living if God's promises are true. Promise one, that he won't actually kill them that very day. And promise two, that through her offspring, everything will be made new. She's the mother of all living. Now, um, this is real faith. For the first time, it seems, Adam and Eve have true faith. And this sets the trajectory for how God's people are supposed to live after the fall. Now, we need to go a lot of different places, um, but let's just pause for a second. If Do you all know that uh, the Old Testament it was originally written in Hebrew, but later in about the second century BC, Jews got together and created a version in Greek. It's called the Septuagint. That's because Greek was the common language around the ancient world at that time. And that's the Old Testament that the apostles would have read. It's the Greek Old Testament. Very few people spoke Hebrew by the first and second century AD. Um, And so when the New Testament quotes Old Testament passages, it quotes the Greek Old Testament. Now in Greek, Eve's name is Zoe, um, which means life in Greek. Now, when we look at uh, the Gospel of John, and it's talking about Jesus coming, it says, in him was Zoe, in him was life, and that life was the light of men. It's taking us back 
And it's saying, remember that? That act of faith that Adam had to call his wife Zoe, Eve, the mother of all living? In Christ was life. The fulfillment of that promise. The offspring of Eve. That's the faith that Adam's having. Looking forward. That through Eve, she will have an offspring from which this dead and cursed world will be made alive and new again. But we're getting ahead of ourselves. Let's pause for a second. Scripture tells us that after Adam and Eve sin, all of the human race is plunged into sin. Okay? In Adam all died. As our covenant head, the father of all the human race, when he sinned, we sinned. And we were given a human nature. or uh, well, We already had a human nature, but we were given a sinful nature. And we were given the sentence of death. Now here's the thing. As Adam and Eve did in the fall, so we do. The problem with Adam and Eve was their disobedience, but that disobedience stemmed from their unbelief. At the root, it was a faith problem. And in order for things to be made right, we need a faith solution. Because if we're children of Adam... What's our attempts at obedience going to do with our deep heart faith problem? Very little. In fact, our attempts at obedience are just going to be another form of disobedience. Because here's what Adam did. Adam convinced, I mean, sorry, here's what Satan did. Satan convinced Adam and Eve that God was withholding what was good from them, so they need to take it for themselves. You need to take it. Eve looked at the fruit and she took it. She ate it. Take what you deserve because God's not going to give it to you. Take what you deserve. God's economy was receive the gift you don't deserve. Satan's economy is take the things you do deserve. Now, God could have said, all right, we'll, we'll follow that. You know what you deserve? death. You all deserve to go back to dust. From dust you started, dust you should return. That's Satan's economy. But God says, I actually want to bring these dirt people back to life. But he's not going to do it through the economy of taking and deserving. That's Satan's way. There's no sense in which we can try to earn our way back to God. That's a form of taking what we deserve. That's not God's way. That's Satan's way. This is why you can say that salvation by works is satanic. It is. You cannot deserve what can only be given. We have to go back to God's economy. An economy where God gives and we receive in faith. That's the way it was at the beginning. That's the way it needs to be in order to return there. But of course, the problem is that we as sinful human beings in Adam, what are we going to have faith in anymore? We're not in the garden. We've been separated from relationship with God. 
We can't work our way back to it. That's a type of earning and deserving. And that's not going to work. But where's the gift that we can receive? And in what can we put our faith and trust? Well, this takes us to Christ, who, by the way, is called the second Adam, the last Adam. So turn with me to Luke 4. In Luke 4, we're given an interesting scene. Jesus being tempted like the first Adam. And the question is, is the last Adam going to do what the first Adam did and fall? Or is he going to succeed where Adam failed? Now, we need to pause here for just a second. Because often when we think about what Christ has done, we think about his death. And maybe his resurrection. And we should, absolutely. But we also need to think about his life. Salvation comes through Christ's life, death, and resurrection. And all of those are important. And one of the reasons for that is because we've got a dual problem. Problem number one is that we're dead in our trespasses and sins, and those sins deserve punishment. Somebody has to take that punishment. We don't want it to be us. But problem number two is that we also need righteousness. We need a righteousness that is better than what Adam had because if we don't have somebody else's righteousness and all that we have is a sacrifice that atones for our sin, we're back in the place of Adam and Eve. And you know what happened to Adam and Eve? They fell from innocence into sin again. We need something better than what Adam and Eve had. We need obedience, an obedience that Adam and Eve didn't have. Uh, In Reformed circles, we call this the covenant of works. In the garden, this do not eat, that was a covenant that God made. Obey, and they didn't obey. But somebody's got to obey the covenant of works. If it's not the first Adam, it needs to be the second Adam. And this is what Jesus did in his earthly ministry. He fulfilled the covenant of works so that we don't have to because we can't. And one of the main ways he did this was in Luke 4. Now, I want you to notice the parallels between Jesus and Adam here. Now, Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit in the wilderness for 40 days, being tempted by the devil, that serpent. And he ate nothing during those days. And when they were ended, he was hungry. This might be the greatest understatement in all of the Bible. After 40 days, he was a little hungry. The devil said to him, if you are the son of God, command this stone to become bread. And Jesus answered him, it is written, man shall not live by bread alone. And the devil took him up and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time. And he said to him, to you I will give all this authority and their glory, for it has been delivered to me. And I will give it to to whom I will. If you then will worship me, it will all be yours. And Jesus answered him, It is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. And he took him to Jerusalem, 
and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down from there. For it is written, He will command his angels concerning you to guard you, and on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. And Jesus answered him, It is said, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. And when the devil had ended every temptation, he departed from him until an opportune time. Satan comes to the first Adam in a garden full of good gifts and tempts Adam and Eve to not believe God's word, to not believe God's promises, to not believe God's goodness. And Adam and Eve fell, fell to the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. Satan comes to the second Adam in a desert, Okay, in the cursed place, full of no gifts from God. It's a lot harder the second time around. And he thinks, if I made the first Adam fall in a garden, surely I can make the second one fall in a desert. After he hasn't eaten for 40 days. <clears throat> so first, he says, hey, you're really hungry. You're really hungry. How about you make these stones bread? Give into that lust of the flesh a little bit. And Jesus says, you know what? I feast on the word of God. Man should not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Adam and Eve may not have believed God's word, but I do. Temptation number one, past. So Satan takes him up on a high hill to see all the nations of the world. The lust of the eyes, the riches, the power. And Satan says, I can give these to you because they're mine. I can give them to whoever I will. Now, this is a temptation because God the Father has promised Jesus all the nations of the world. That's why he came, to set up shop, to bring in the kingdom of God, to be king. But here's the problem, is that if Jesus is going to get all the kingdoms of this world for himself, God's way, the Father's way, according to the plan, he's got to go through the cross. But Satan says, I got a better way. Let's, let's get rid of God's promise to give you all the kingdoms of the world if you go through the cross. I can give you all the kings of the world now. And Jesus says, no. It's better to serve God and do it God's way. Temptation two passed. So Satan says, well, you know, you are God, right? You're the son of God. You deserve to be glorified. And everyone deserves to know who you are. So how about you take yourself to the temple and jump off? And God promises that he's going to catch you. That's what his, his word says. Now, this is a great temptation. This is the pride of life. Yeah, Jesus knows that his glory comes through the cross, but he could get glory without the cross going to the temple and jumping off. Everyone sees him. 
Everyone would worship him. But Jesus says, no, I believe God's way is better. And I'm not going to test him because I trust him. That's faith. Jesus says, I would rather go through the cross because I believe God will give me those good gifts later. He has the faith that Adam and Eve didn't have. And by that faith, he resists the devil and he obeys in a way that Adam and Eve didn't obey. He passes the test. He fulfills the covenant of works. And then he makes his way to the cross, taking our guilt and our sin on, ourself, on himself. And then he rises from the dead, victorious, doing it God's way. Now, it's important for us to reflect on this, no matter where we are in our faith walk and our faith journey. Some of us here are completely faithless. We're still in Adam. And if you're still in Adam, you're still walking according to the lies that Adam and Eve believed. When I talk to people who, uh, who are aware of the gospel, a lot of them have grown up in church, and they're resisting it. They're refusing to believe. Often, the reasons come down to one of those three things that we talked about. Either you don't believe God's word. You don't believe God's good. Or you don't believe that God fulfills his promise. And it could be the promise of eternal condemnation if you walk in sin. Or the promise of eternal life if you walk in faith. But no matter what, it's a faith problem. It's an unbelief problem. And that unbelief needs to be dealt with before any of that sin can be dealt with. But we know that faith can't be something that we conjure up on our own. If it's something that we make for ourselves, it's just another form of taking, another form of deserving, another form of works. Faith itself has to be a gift in order for us to return to the economy of gift and gratitude. And so for those of us here who are on the other side of faith, looking in, saying, I don't think I believe what God is calling you to is to make a radical step of faith by asking for faith. Try it. Pray. Ask the Lord Help my unbelief. See what he does. But the lies of Satan are that you don't actually want to be in God's economy. Because in God's economy, he gets to be God and you can't be God. In God's economy, you have to trust him and depend on him. And you have to sometimes not know and be okay with that. And our sinful hearts would prefer to be our own gods and determine for ourselves what's good and evil. But that's a lie of the devil. It's a powerful lie, but it's a lie that's been destroying people from the beginning. Now, for those of us who have believed, we, we have been justified by faith alone. We have 
been converted, and we're now walking in this life of faith. What does faith alone mean for us? Well, here's the thing. If I do a little reflecting real quick. Are you discouraged? Are you feeling beaten, battered, without courage? Are you afraid, full of worry and anxiety, struck with the reality of the fact that you're living in a world you can't control? Are you wrestling with sin? That should definitely cover all of us, right? Uh, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life. All of these things stem from unbelief. Scripture says all we need is a mustard seed of faith, right? In order to be justified. But the rest of our life is to see that faith grow into a beautiful tree. That's what God's work in our lives is about. This is called the doctrine of sanctification by faith. Okay, we talk about justification by faith, but we're also sanctified by faith. All of us here, the sins that we struggle with, the doubts, the fears, the anxiety, the discouragement, all of that is rooted in the same temptations and the same lies that we see from Adam and Eve. And we are commanded to cultivate faith. And as we cultivate faith, we're opening up our hearts and our eyes to receive God good, God's good gifts. Um, now, what does this mean practically? This means that when we're struggling with sin or we're struggling with discouragement, we identify that this is really a, a faith issue. But faith's not something you can just, I'm going to be, uh, I'm going to believe more. I'm going to have more faith. You want to white knuckle it. No, it's not how it works, right? Faith is something that we receive, which means we have to put ourselves in a position to receive it. And this is called the means of grace because faith is a gift of God's grace. Struggling with faith? Go to the scriptures. Struggling with faith? Go to God in prayer. Struggling with faith? Come here. Receive the word. Worship. Partake of the sacraments. Enjoy the fellowship of believers. What I've noticed is that many Christians who struggle with faith, they start pulling away from the very things that will give them faith. I haven't read my Bible in a while because it's just, it's hard to believe. I'm struggling with my faith. I haven't been praying very much. I'm struggling with my faith. I'm not going to church regularly. That's like somebody saying, I'm really thirsty, so I'm staying away from water. We all struggle with faith. The Christian life is all about faith. And faith is a gift that God gives us through ordinary means. And as we grow in faith, we start to enjoy the economy of the garden once again. Where God gives and we receive. So, as we learn to cultivate gratitude... Our eyes are opened even more to seeing the gifts that God gives us, and our faith continues to grow. And we're assured that that faith will one day turn to sight. And that garden life that we're starting to get a taste of now 
We'll get it in its full abundance in the future. We go to Revelation, that last book that we said is really important. And in Revelation, it says that there's going to be a new tree of life. But there's going to be 12 kinds of fruit on it rather than just one. And there's going to be no tree of knowledge of good and evil. Heaven's going to come to earth. We're not just going to get a garden. We're going to get a city that's even better than the garden. And God himself will dwell with us. And all of our faith will be turned to sight and all of our tears will be wiped away, and all of our hopes will be realized. That's the promise. That's what we walk towards in faith. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your promises, for your word, uh, for your very goodness. We pray that you would strengthen us in faith, that our faith would extinguish the fiery darts of the evil one, that we would have our faith directed toward Christ as our second Adam, and that we would have our faith directed towards you as our good Father. Father, I pray for those who do not have faith, who are walking in unbelief and unrepentance, that you would work in their hearts, that you would open up their eyes, that you would defeat the work of the devil within them, and that you would give them new life. Father, we thank you and we praise you. In Jesus' precious name we pray. Amen.